Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 to 2. Uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just give me one second as I pull up my, my notes. Great. Okay. Um, I'm going to suggest that if you have been a Christian for a while, uh, you might have gone through something called the paradox, uh, the power paradox. I see this paradox as a Christian it may not necessarily lead to you falling away as a Christian, but it will lead you to feel discouraged or to lose heart perhaps to give in to sin a bit more than usual or to slip back into living life like the rest of the world. And this power is, I think, what you can understand as the power paradox. Uh, let me try to explain what I mean by the power paradox uh, by showing you an example of an Easter talk that I heard a couple of weeks ago. So I was listening to this talk and it was a really excellent speaker. He was speaking about the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It's not a talk from Covent Garden. Someone else was speaking. And he was describing how Jesus in his resurrection, he had authority and power. And it was a really clear, faithful, persuasive talk. And after the talk, there was a Q&A. And there was a question that someone sent in. And I think it is from a genuine Christian trying to work out what it meant to live as a Christian. And this was his question. What does it mean for Jesus to have authority and power? Uh, it doesn't feel like he does now. Do you get that? And there, there seems to be an incongruence between our description of Jesus and the Christian life, one of authority and power, and our experience of it. Uh, there's incongruence between our description and our experience. And another way to understand uh, this power paradox is what images comes to mind when you hear the word power. I wonder what comes to your mind. It might be someone with a really strong, powerful physique of someone that is a fast cast, powerful images, uh, someone who is impressive, uh, charismatic, with uh, holding a lot of authority. But you see, then lies the problem. Uh, Christian leaders, they are often unimpressive and very normal. Uh, Christians are often unimpressive and very normal. Uh, the Christian life is often very normal. We have our daily battle with sin, uh, we pray and we read the word, but the Christian life uh, doesn't feel very powerful, nor exciting, nor remarkable. In fact, it feels really normal. And sometimes it feels even mundane or even a bit boring. And then lies the problem. The, our understanding of the concept of power, I think of the images that you might have imagined, makes the Christian life look remarkably weak. 
So why does Christianity feel weak, yet described as victorious? Why does it feel so normal? Why is it so hard to live a godly life, hard to love others, yet we describe it as the best way to live? And if you've been a Christian for a while, I wonder whether you've experienced this, this paradox. Uh, the description of the Christian life is meant to be victorious, yet the experience of it feels really weak. So the question during this lunchtime is how are we gonna is how we're gonna deal with this power paradox. There is a specific expression of this power paradox in the Ephesian church. Imagine with me, about ten years since uh, ten years ago, uh, the Ephesian church was planted by the great apostle Paul as he crossed the Mediterranean. Since then, many house churches have grown across the city in Ephesus. And every Saturday, they would meet to pray and to read scripture together. But after the years have passed, the initial buzz of being a Christian has started to, to wear off. I mean, yes, there, there wasn't any outright persecution against them. But, but life started to feel a bit normal, a bit vanilla. And looking sideways, um, things looked more impressive. See, the pagan religion, which many of them came from, looked really impressive. They had their temples, which were big and powerful. Or Judaism, on the other side, uh, they had their synagogues. And the people who attended the synagogues were pious, really pious. They looked different. They dressed differently. And things looked impressive and powerful. But the worst of all, the thing that was most discouraging Imagine one Saturday as they were meeting in a house together, praying and singing songs together. As someone comes through the door and he shouts, they got him. They've got Paul. Paul is in prison. You see, the great apostle Paul, Paul, the one who started the church, who did amazing miracles, made the lame to walk and the blind to see. Paul, who taught them for three years, he preached to them and he argued against the false teachers. Paul, and he's now with two metal chains around his wrist, with a thick metal chain connecting them together. Paul was in prison. See, more than the Christian life feeling mundane, it's even worse. Their minister, the great apostle Paul, looked especially weak. And you don't hear from Paul for another year. I mean, it's really easy to, to understand that the Ephesian church would lose, would lose heart in that situation. And it's, it's into this situation, uh, Paul in chains, that he writes the letter to the Ephesians. You can imagine he picks up his pen and you can hear the clinking of chains as he picks it up and he writes this letter. If you have your Bibles with you, go to chapter 3, verse 1. And it says, Therefore, this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ. Go over to verse 13, chapter 3, verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. And over the page to chapter 6, verse 20 for which I am an ambassador in chains. 
You see, Paul writes because of his chains. Uh, he is in prison and he writes to the Ephesian church. And I hope you begin to understand the paradox which I'm trying to describe. The Lord Jesus is the victorious Lord Jesus, risen, ascended on high at the Father's right hand. But his commissioned apostle is in chains. He looks weak. Christians and Christian leaders are supposed to be victorious. But why does Christianity look so weak? Or why does Paul look so weak? And so Paul writes this letter to deal with this issue and to encourage them. We are be, we're going to be looking at an overview of Ephesians today, and I thought it'd be good to give us a shape of the letter. So let me put on a slide to help you um, get a sense of what's going on. So you can see there in the slide that the letter to the Ephesians are bookended by a greeting and a praise in chapter 1, verse 1 to 14, which ends with an exhortation and parting in chapter 6, 10 to 14. And in both sections, cosmic vocabulary is being used in both sections, suggesting that something big is going on. The book roughly splits into half after chapter 3, and you have two bookends and you have two halves. In the first half of the letter, you have two prayers. And prayers are really important in any epistle in the New Testament. So one uh, tip to read the Bible, for reading the Bible, is to look at the prayers of the letters because the prayers expose the pastoral intention of the author. Imagine to me, you are writing a letter to a friend and you write out your prayers to that friend. Uh, so you might say, dear so-and-so, um, I've been praying that you find comfort in the Lord Jesus during this period of isolation. There you expose what you really care for your friend, uh, to find comfort in the Lord Jesus. It may not be the only thing that you're praying for him or her, but it's the main thing that you want them to know. Likewise, in all prayers, in any sort of letter in the New Testament, the prayers show the pastoral intention of the author. And so the question is, what is Paul praying for? If you have your Bibles, go to chapter 1, verse 16. Let me read it for you. It's a prayer for knowledge. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that God, of, that God of Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Look over to chapter 3, verse 18 to 19. It's the second prayer. That you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You can see that the first half of Ephesians is a prayer for knowledge. Uh, both prayers are prayers for knowledge. And so the first half is all about knowledge. The second half of Ephesians, it is the main imperative in the second half. It is to walk. Uh, you see that in chapter 4, verse 1. 
I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've been called. You see that also in verse 17. Chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Again, 5 verse 2, 5 verse 8, and 5 verse 15. Walk is the main imperative in the second half of the letter. So that the letter roughly breaks down the two. So know is the first half and walk is the second half. And this is a really key uh, concept to grasp in Ephesians, that knowing leads to walking. A change happens as we begin to grasp knowledge. And the knowledge that Paul is writing about is not textbook information and not the kind of knowledge that you glean from a textbook but a knowledge which affects our whole being, um, our core, our humanity, our identity. Uh, Peter O'Brien, who writes one of the, the best commentaries on Ephesians, he describes this as identity formation. It's the kind of knowledge which forms our identity. But the question is, what kind of knowledge will help them to walk? If the first half is to know and the second half is to walk, what kind of knowledge will help them to walk? I look down in chapter 1, verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. What is, uh, what is the thing that Paul wants them to know? Paul wants them to know the resurrection power. And it's the four, there are four aspects of the resurrection of power that Paul wants them to know. Uh, the four aspects of power that's explained in verse 120 to 30 to 23. It should be verse 30, it should be 23. And chapter 2, first of in chapter 2, first of chapter 2, second of chapter 2, and also in chapter 3. And it's those four aspects of power that will lead to four aspects of the walk in the second half. Let me show you an example of that. If you go to chapter 1, verse 20. Let me read it for you. That is the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is the name, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Uh, the knowledge that Paul wants him to know is about the resurrection power that has raised Christ to be Lord over all. And how does that affect the second half of the letter? Knowing Jesus as Lord over all drives the walk in chapter 5, verse 22 to 6, 9. Uh, go over to chapter 5, verse 22. Famous passages that comes up in many weddings. You see that wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Knowing that the Lord Jesus is Lord over all drives the walk for wives as to submit to their husbands. You also see that in chapter 6, verse 7. There's for 
workers or slaves, bond servants, to render service with a goodwill as to the Lord and not to men. Uh, you see the point there? Knowing that Jesus is Lord over all drives the walk. It drives the walk for wives and for bond servants. We're going to more details over the next few weeks as we see how each aspect of the resurrection power will affect the walk. Uh, but come, come back over the next few weeks to find out how. So the first question we are thinking of is what kind of knowledge will help them walk? It's knowing different aspects of the resurrection power will help them to walk. But remember the main question that we are dealing with this lunchtime is how would this deal with the power paradox? See, Paul writes this letter to rewire the understanding of power. Despite weakness on the surface, he wants them to understand that the reality is power. And perhaps we have understood power wrongly. Uh, maybe our concept of power has been defined by the world and not by the word. And maybe we need a new perspective on power. Uh, we see that most clearly in chapter 3, verse 13. If you remember the structure, chapter 3, verse 13 is, I would suggest, the key passage in, in Ephesians. It is the passage which the whole letter uh, turns around. It's, it's a hinge on chapter 3, verse 13. And specifically in chapter 3, uh, the verse 13, uh, we, you see that most clearly. Let me put the verse up on the screen. So let me read it for you. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Uh, do you notice what was going on there? Uh, you expect Paul to say, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, uh, because I'll be freed soon from prison. But he doesn't say that. He says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. You see, there's something about the chains that are around his wrist and the chain which connects them together, which is glorious. There's something, that is, there's something about the mundane Christian life that in fact is power. There's something about an unimpressive group of Christians that, in fact, is remarkable. And how does that work? Well, you've got to keep coming back over the next few weeks. So how do, you do, how do we deal with the, the power paradox? Uh, Paul would say uh, we need a new perspective on power. But what if the way we understand power isn't really power and weakness isn't really weakness? The seemingly boring Christian life well, is actually fine, but our per perception of power isn't. Now we need a new perspective on power. And Paul says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Two implications as we close for today. As we saw in the, the overall structure of Ephesians, let me put it back on screen. Um, if the first half is to know and the second half that leads to the second half of walking, then knowing is key. And not simply information, as I mentioned before, but heart knowledge, the kind of knowledge which affects our core, 
our identity as people. And knowing helps us to understand power rightly. And if you notice, Paul prays for that kind of knowledge. So do be praying for ourselves and praying for each other over the next term as we try to understand power rightly. So the know leads to the walk. And we need to pray that we know things rightly. And the second implication is, um, I want to suggest that the purpose of Ephesians is to not lose heart. And as we started to consider this new perspective on power, I hope you begin to understand that a bit more. But what if the, the boring, seemingly mundane, normal Christian life is actually a life of power? And what if a group of unremarkable Christians coming together over Zoom is actually really remarkable? You see, if you call yourself a Christian today, if you believe that Jesus is Lord, that something big has happened. A true power is at work. Something glorious is happening, or rather something glorious has already happened. Chapter 3, verse 13, Paul writes, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. I do hope that you'll be uh, interested to keep coming back to hear the rest of Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians is really great uh, to shape the way we understand about power and about the Christian life. Why don't I pray for us as we close? Heavenly Father, you know that as your children, life can sometimes feel really mundane, tiresome and discouraging, especially in this time of lockdown. Life outside your family can sometimes look more appealing, more satisfying, more life-giving, more exciting. So we ask, Father, that in your kindness, might you open the eyes of our hearts to know the resurrection power at work within us. Lead us into more good works each day. And we pray this for Jesus' glory. In his name we pray. Amen.